Paul said there, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And Father, we just humbly ask as we spend time together now in the word of God, as we continue in our worship of you, would you please prepare us accordingly by the ministry of your Holy Spirit within us that we be receptive and attentive. We want to hear your voice, Lord, and what you want to say to us through what you have spoken already through your spirit-inspired word. So bless the word of God this day and speak by your spirit's ministry. And we ask together in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, the statement now versus then indicates that the way things currently are right now is not how things will be at a later time or not how things will be forever. So how things are right now are clearly different than the way things are going to be at a time period later on. And currently, as followers of Jesus, that's true. We live in a temporal existence here on this earth, and there's a certain way that things are now in our relationship with God and our experience spiritually. But as God's kids, we're also destined for moving one day into the eternal realm as we enter into our father's house and are together with the Lord. So one day when we die or the other exit plan is when our Lord returns, hopefully sooner, we hope rather than later to draw us out of this world, we are going to enter into our Lord's presence and we're then going to be together with him. That's going to be a great change. The important question is what will last? What's still going to remain? What won't last from our current spiritual experience? What differences will there be? Well, that's kind of what our text is beginning to address for us here this morning. Again, remember chapters 11 through 14, as we said, Paul's instructing Christians at the church of Corinth, as well as you and I, as the church today, how we are to gather properly right ways and wrong ways in regards to our assembly meetings and our gathering times and when we come together for worship, particularly focusing on the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit among the church family. And Paul has paused now in chapter 13 to emphasize to us that love is the central issue that the primary thing in spiritual experience as well as the expression of the gifts of the Spirit is love itself. And he's currently been speaking in the first part of chapter 13 that we've looked at about the superior importance of the way of love, 
That is that love should be the reason why we're open to these things. It should be the reason why we're desiring to be useful to the Holy Spirit and that there should be a loving manner in the way that we operate as we assemble together as God's family, as it pertains to loving God and loving others. That church life and worship meetings is predominantly to be about loving the Lord with all of our heart and loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, being directed by love. And he now has been led into this final section of chapter 13 to really speak about the permanence of love. You might say the first part of the chapter, he was talking about the priority of love or the superiority of love. And now as he comes to the last part of the chapter, he addresses the permanence of love, that love is the one thing that will remain forever. And he's describing here how this love that God has for us that we talked about last time in depth, this agape, unconditional, sacrificial love, that same love God asks us to have for others. And the last thing he said in that section or that we looked at, the first three words of verse eight, again, remember he declared there at the end of the list, this love, the love of God never fails. It speaks of permanence, right? It never fails. It holds its place. It never quits. That is love will last. It doesn't have an end. It will never run out and it love will never lose its purpose. Now, in connection to that, he then says, in contrast, verse 8 going on, but, it's a word of contrast, whether there are prophecies, they will fail. There's the same word again. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So Paul contrasts how despite how important and how valuable the gifts of the Holy Spirit are, and they absolutely are essential to the health of the church, that they only serve a temporary purpose, the word of God is going to say to us here. That they have a time period before Jesus returns to this earth, but once our Lord returns, things will change spiritually. There will be a transition in our spiritual experience. Paul refers here in verse 8 to the spiritual gift of prophecy, He refers to the spiritual gift of exercising speaking in tongues, which we'll talk in great detail about in the next chapter. He speaks about receiving and communicating a word of knowledge, which is another gift of the Holy Spirit. And these gifts, as well as all spiritual gifts, have a very important purpose for right now. They're essential to build up the church, to keep the church healthy to reach the lost, to be fruitful. Yet all of these valuable spiritual gifts, the Bible teaches, have, if you might say, an expiration date. In fact, if you just look at the language, look at the descriptive terms with me there in verse eight that are being used regarding the gifts of the spirit. It says there, they will fail, they will cease, and they will vanish away. Those are very descriptive terms. They will fail. The idea is these gifts will no longer work as they once did among the church. He says these gifts will cease. That is, they'll no longer be in operation because the need for them will technically cease. They'll no longer be necessary in the same way they are now as a part of the life here of the church on the earth. They're going to vanish away. That is, the operation of these exercises of the spirit won't be happening any longer in the same way they were happening as the church was here on the earth 
in a time when we're living in the flesh and separate from the Lord. They won't be essential in the same way. So Paul's indicating here that there's coming a future time period when our Lord comes again. And as we read about there clearly in verse 12, then when we're face to face with Jesus together with him and we're in the eternal realm, that a change is going to come in relationship to the need to exercise these gifts. And this is what Paul's beginning to address here in verse 8, particularly where he speaks of prophecy in verse 8. And he says, prophecy one day is going to fail. Now, prophecy, as we said before, is when someone is used as God's instrument to speak something that God wants to clear. So God gives to them a brief sentence or two, a brief, simple message that God wants communicated. So to receive and speak what God wants declared is what prophecy is. Yet once, think about it, we're literally in the presence of God. Does God really need to use a human being as a mediator to communicate a clear word in regards to what he once said? Well, of course not, right? I mean, if I was with someone that I loved and I could tell them a message myself, why would I not face-to-face say something to them directly instead of saying to someone else, hey, can you tell them? Uh, When we're in the presence of the Lord, we're going to hear directly his voice in a way like we never have before. He's going to speak directly to us as his children. So there's really no need for God to use people to prophesy or to speak through people. That won't really be essential any longer. He says as well that the gift of speaking in tongues will cease. And again, speaking in tongues, we'll see next time, is this supernatural ability to pray to God or to praise God in song or through words of praise in a language that we do not naturally know. But it is a supernatural ability whereby our spirit continues to communicate to God in a way that bypasses our logical thinking and where, in a sense, you may say deep calls unto deep, where the deepest part of our being in our spirit is enabled by the Holy Spirit to commune with God And it is a gift we'll see for self-edification in order to build yourself up spiritually as the believer in the midst of challenging times to carry on in that praise or prayer. Yet think about it. When I'm in the presence of the Lord, that won't be needed anymore because when I'm in the presence of the Lord and I'm together with him and I have a perfectly glorified human body and I'm not on a sinful earth struggling any longer, there's going to be no limitation to my ability to communicate to God, to offer praise in the purest sense to God. There won't be that need. So in a sense, the the need for this gift will cease. He mentions as well, the word of knowledge where God reveals something that he knows as an all-knowing God to one of us in order to perhaps share that with another or be aware how to pray or be careful. Yet in heaven, when we are in the literal presence of God himself, our understanding is going to increase incredibly. God's not going to have to disclose to us things that we can clearly see as we're in his presence, as we're together with him seeing in a whole different way as the text will speak to us about more. So therefore, these gifts have a wonderful purpose now But to a degree, it's fair to say they'll vanish away, cease and fail because their need to be exercised really won't be the same as they were on earth. There'll be a transition as to how things are now as compared to how things are then. The value and purpose of the gifts will diminish. So their originally intended purpose for the church kind of begins to fail away as we enter into eternity. So 
to a degree, you might fairly say we won't even care about the gifts of the Holy Spirit when we're in the eternal dimension, experiencing the fullness of a spiritual experience with God. Now, think about this. Paul's saying these things to help balance a church, the church at Corinth, that was what? Overemphasizing and hyperfixating upon the importance of spiritual gifts as the pinnacle of their meetings, as the most important thing of church life, which led to unhealthy practices in that particular church because they were hyperfixating on the gifts in an out-of-balanced way. And so Paul says here, look, spiritual gifts are helpful. They're essential and important. But he's reminding the Corinthians here, look, but they're temporary. One day, they're actually not even going to exist anymore. So are they really therefore the most important thing? Are they really the most superior thing if they're actually one thing that's not going to last forever, even into eternity? And he then describes how God is going to bring a great upgrade. Look with me as he goes on. He says, verse 9, for we know in part, that is right now, and we prophesy in part, that is right now, but, there's our contrast word again, when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part or partial will be done away. So Paul really begins to zero in now on this idea of spiritual life now versus spiritual life and spiritual experience then at a later period. He says right now, as wonderful as it is, there's a limited spiritual experience to a degree. You notice two times there in verse 9, he clearly uses that term, we know and we prophesy, he says that word, in part. And the idea in part there means partial, in a partial way. The idea is in an incomplete or a partial manner that there is limitation or something is limited. It's not perfect yet, it's not complete. So he says right now our spiritual knowledge while on earth while we're separated from being in the presence of the Lord in heaven, while we're still in these weak human bodies, right, that are flawed, these aren't our glorified perfect bodies yet, and while we are still living in this condition, even at its greatest degree, our understanding, at its greatest degree, it's always still going to be partial. It's always going to still be limited, in part, incomplete. And look, certainly, God reveals a lot to us about himself. I mean, by sending his son, Jesus Christ, Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. He was the fullness of the Godhead revealed to us. So God has shown us a lot. He sent Jesus to live among us to show us clearly in personage what God really is like. We have the word of God. It's not really that small of a book that's completely inspired by God's spirit, which is a revelation of multitudes of truth about God, about God's ways and God's will and God's plans and God's purposes. So God has revealed a ton of knowledge throughout his word to be gleaned and learned. And the spirit of God always is revealing things to us and showing things to us, helping us to increase in our knowledge and understanding. But even at its greatest degree, all of our spiritual knowledge on this earth, God is telling us here, while on this earth, it will always still be partial. It will always still be limited and incomplete because of the way things are now, because God is so great and incredible in who he really is. 
And because we're living in these finite human bodies still on this earth, there will always be that gap. Well, what does that mean by way of application for you and I personally? Well, two things I would definitely say. The first one being this, that reality means this. We should always remain hungry to learn more spiritually. We should always remain hungry to learn more spiritually and to grow in our understanding. Don't ever allow yourself to think or to begin to feel, no matter how long you've been a Christian, that you know enough spiritually. That you've got a good knowledge of the word of God and you just, you know enough spiritually. I mean, you could outquote verses over half the people in the church. Or you know the Bible better than 75% of Christians around you. Or, or that, like, I've been walking with the Lord a long time. I've read the Bible six times through already. I, I know a lot spiritually, so I can just draw off of my memory banks. And I, I kind of just know enough. And you kind of put that learning and that hunger for spiritual understanding in neutral. And as a result, you even kind of begin to lose interest in getting to know the Lord more deeply. And can I remind us, that is what this is all about. It's not just knowing your history book better. It's not just saying, I know the manual really well. I don't need the manual anymore. I fixed cars for so long. I know the manual. I, I might reference it once in a while, but I know it's so. Look, it's not about getting to know a manual. It's about getting to know Emmanuel. Right? It's about getting to know the person behind the pages. And, and God is infinite. There's always more to learn about the Lord and to discover about God. So don't ever lose your desire to further mature your level of understanding spiritually. As long as we're on this earth, we need to be developing and progressing in spiritual knowledge and understanding. Right now, we only know partially, God reminds us. It's only partial, God says. But this should compel us to be hungry to learn because there's always more to grasp. In fact, the Bible even commands us to be, listen, increasing in the knowledge of God. We're commanded to do that, to be increasing in our knowledge of God. Second Peter 3, we're told to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we should always remain hungry spiritually, and because our knowledge is also limited and partial on this earth, we should also remain humble because we need to remember we don't know everything spiritually. So we also should remain humble because we don't know everything spiritually. And that's very important. Our knowledge on any spiritual matter, always remember, is limited. We're still always going to be lacking some details, all the right info. Therefore, what I think I may know may actually be wrong because my limited understanding, because I have a partial understanding and keeping that in mind when we view matters and make decisions is important i have a limited understanding so i have partial understanding so when i make decisions or when i view matters i should remember that with a degree of humility or for example keeping that in mind in how we relate to other people to know sometimes that though you think you may know you may not know only god knows everything about a person only God knows everything that's going on in someone's heart or what's happened in their past or what's happening in their current circumstances. And sometimes we think we know, well, I know them. And God says, you don't know them like I know them. And so sometimes we need to remain humble to remember we have limited knowledge and only God knows someone fully. And that is why, look, that is why we should remain humble and remember that our job is to love people. 
unconditionally with agape love, believing all things, hoping all things, as we read last. But God says, look, your job is just to love people. Let me work in people because I know everything about them and you don't. And this is very important for us to remember. Remember what we saw earlier in Corinthians, Paul says, knowledge puffs up with arrogant pride, right? Having more knowledge. But he says, but love is what builds people up. So he also tells us here in our verse, not only about do we have a limited partial knowledge, but he also says, even notice verse nine, that when we prophesy, even if we exercise a prophetic word or anyone does, he says, even exercising the gift of prophecy is partial and limited to a degree as well. Now, this is very important also. And why is that? Because though the Holy Spirit may work through people at times in the gift of giving them a prophetic word, the challenge is our humanity as an instrument that God is working through. So I know we don't perhaps do it as much nowadays. We have such hyper concern about everything. But when I was a kid and growing up, if you were outside and doing something, you were thirsty, you turn on the faucet and you drank water out of what? The hose. But when you drank water out of the hose, what did you always taste? The hose, right? To some degree, you got the water, but it still kind of tasted like that rubbery taste of the hose. And again, when God's bringing the power of his spirit, the living water of his spirit through a person, through a human instrument, sometimes you get a little bit of a taste of the hose, if you understand what I'm saying, as God flows through us as a vessel. And so because we're just human beings and we have limitations and we're flawed, there's no guarantee in whenever a person is thinking they're exercising a prophecy or even making an effort to exercise a genuine prophetic word that everything is going to be perfect. Sometimes we have to realize there's a degree of limitation. Things are partial because we're human beings. And that's why God's word balances prophecy for that very reason understanding human limitation as vessels. First Thessalonians 5 says this, listen, he says, do not quench the spirit, kink the hose, shut it off. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, that is despise them or scoff at them. We don't need them or they're not really real. But what does he say? But test them all and hold fast to what is good. So he says, don't scoff at prophecy and get cynical. But he says, but test it, judge it. And only hold on to that which is good. That is sometimes when someone shares, hey, I believe the Lord's given me a word for you, or I believe the Lord's given me something to share. We listen to it, but then we just in spiritual maturity to a degree evaluate and scrutinize it. Does it line up with scripture? Is is the spirit of others who have the same Holy Spirit of truth bearing witness to that? Or is it, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'm, it doesn't seem like something good, so I don't know if I'm gonna hold on to that. And And again, this is just important to evaluate in a sense of spiritual maturity. First Corinthians 14 is going to say to us in a gathering, if there are one or two or three people that feel the Lord's given them a prophetic word, let them share. But it says, but let others be judging. That is evaluating if genuinely it's something that's a prophetic word of the spirit of God. And first Corinthians 14 even tells us some of the ways we'll see that we can do that. So a prophetic word may come forth and it may be completely accurate. It may be 100% you know, accurate and spot on, or a prophetic word may come forth through someone, and perhaps in a general sense, it's completely accurate. But maybe the details are a little bit fuzzy, and sometimes God may give a prophetic word, and somebody can share a general concept that is accurate, but maybe they don't have all the details. 
They don't have the specifics of how that's going to play out or what that's really going to look like. They can just share a general concept because they're a limited human being. Or sometimes, I believe, someone can share a prophetic word, and, and to a degree, it can kind of be partially accurate, but then maybe they keep talking, and then the train goes off the tracks. <laughs> I've seen that before, too. Like, if you would have stopped at the second sentence, that would have been genuine and edifying. But when you turned your prophetic word into a sermon, it went off the track. And then you started saying unaccurate things that were just of the flesh. Or quite honestly, as I said, someone can share what they think is a prophetic word. And just because it sounds spiritual does not mean we should always embrace it because they're a limited, partial human being. And if their humanity didn't discern correctly what God was saying, it could be completely off track. And we have to be wise and discerning. And this is why we got to love people and walk in love and recognize this and give grace and balance in these whole matters. Yet, he says, the good news is this, verse 10. But when that which is perfect has come later on, then that which is in part or partial knowledge, prophecy, all these, that, that which is partial is going to then be done away with. Now, most commentators and scholars agree that as Paul talks about here, that which is perfect coming, that he is speaking about here, the perfect one, Jesus Christ coming back. That is the coming of our Lord in the future. Uh, again, for it's not until, think about it, our Lord comes back that as his return, that that's what's finally going to make everything that's wrong right. It's when Jesus returns that everything is finally going to be perfect in the world, in the church, in all of our lives personally. When Jesus comes back, he will resolve all that's wrong and make everything right in his kingdom. Being in our Lord's presence in glory is going to be the experience of total perfection spiritually. We think spiritual life is good now. You can't even begin to fathom what it's going to be like, spiritual experience, when we're literally in his presence. When he finally comes, then things will reach the perfect state. Our salvation will be perfectly completed. Because then we will experience the last stage of salvation. Right now as a Christian, we've been delivered from the penalty we deserve for our sin and the power of sin from dominating and ruling our lives. But right now we still live among the presence of sin in a fallen world. But when we're with the Lord, perfection comes because then we're set free from the presence of sin and the struggles that we deal with on this earth we're going to be with him enjoying his kingdom and that will make everything perfect and paul says here when that which is making everything perfect has finally come verse 10 he says then that which is in part or partial is going to be done away with that is there's going to be that perfect spiritual experience when our lord arrives no more limitations imagine no more real need for spiritual gifts to have to be at work to keep the church healthy and strong because Jesus will be fully at work. It'll be back to his full-on ministry again with no human limitation. There'll be no more struggle with partial knowledge of things. Won't that be great? 
No more questions unanswered. No more fuzziness of what does that mean? We will understand fully. No more challenges with spiritual accuracy because Jesus will be teaching. Jesus will be guiding. Jesus will be making things known. No more lacking or yearning. Look, we think it's great following Jesus. Now we have no idea how wonderful it's going to be to be able to worship and follow our Lord then in ultimate perfection. Revelation 19 through 22, speaking of the coming of our Lord in his glorious kingdom, let me just read you some of the verses from here before we move on. Just ponder this for a moment. This is what's coming then in the state of perfection. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Write, for these words are true and faithful. And then of heaven we read this as well. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lamb of God Almighty and the Lamb is its temple. The city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine for the glory of God illuminated it and the lamb is its life and there shall no my means enter into it anything that defiles or causes abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the lamb's book of life. Revelation 22 declares, and he showed me a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street on either side was a tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and the lamb shall be in it and his servant shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. That is a partial description of the perfection that one day we'll get to enjoy when the perfect one returns and we're in his presence. Now, those who want to use verse 10 as a proof text, and there are those who do, a limited group, who want to use verse 10 as a proof text that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit are no longer in operation today among the church and that they've ceased to be valid. They say that verse 10 Speaking of that which is perfect coming is a reference to the completion of New Testament scripture. That when New Testament scripture was completed or perfected, that brought a complete or perfect revelation. And so therefore, that is when we no longer need certain gifts of the Holy Spirit anymore. Now, let me just simply say, I do not agree with that. I don't agree with it generally. And let me just say as well, the context of the passage, if you want to be an honest student, is implying what? Now versus then. Present spiritual experience versus 
future spiritual experience in an eternal sense. And I think it helps clarify that it's not speaking of Scripture being completed, but the perfection of our perfect one, the Savior, returning back to us. In fact, just look with me in verse 12 quickly, where he says there that then, at that time, we're going to be what? Face to face. Face to face. Look, I'm looking forward to one day being face to face with the Lord. Not my Bible forever. And look, I love the word of God. Trust me. I hope you do too. I love scripture. But a perfect spiritual experience is being face to face with the Lord, with our Savior, with the one who loves us and spared us from eternal damnation. What scripture teaches as well, what the Bible teaches is that we will be face to face with the Lord someday, that we're going to see his face. So what makes eternal life glorious is not reading the Bible all day long. It's seeing the face of Jesus forever and ever eternally and being able to be with him. And to me, that clearly speaks of how the gifts of the spirit are still needed, available and useful until the experience of spiritual perfection happens when we're face to face with Jesus. That until that time, that thing is happening one way, we won't experience that transition where the gifts no longer really needed. Again, it's a reminder to us, this section here, that until our Lord comes, nothing on earth, listen, will be perfect. Until our Lord comes, nothing on earth is ever going to be perfect. It's a reminder as well that until Jesus comes and we're all in his presence, nothing in any church is ever going to be perfect. The church will never be perfect. And until our Lord Jesus comes and we are face to face with him and you are in heaven with him, nothing in your life is ever going to be perfect. That should make you go, ah, okay. Because you can wear yourself out being bummed out, upset, discouraged. This isn't perfect and that's not perfect and seem like things were going perfect. And then that happened. Well, nothing's going to ever be perfect. Do you know why? Because this is in heaven. In heaven, everything's perfect finally. Until that time, there are imperfections and challenges and trials. Paul goes on to tell us here in regards to this in verse 11, when I was a child, he's going to use an analogy now, I spoke as a child and I understood as a child and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, he says, I put away, I was done with childish things. So Paul uses this analogy here of the difference between what again? Two different stages, childhood and adult life. Two different time periods, moving from one time period to the existence of another time period and how changes come with that. Paul says, when I was a child and in the state of being a child, in that time, he says, my level of understanding, he says, my way of thinking, even how I spoke was characterized by still being childish. Why? Because a child has a limited capacity to understand things. Their reasoning is limited. They have a limited current level of maturity. They only have partial capacity to understand things. They even only have partial capacity to talk and to communicate. My potential for thinking, Paul says, that's what it was. Now, as Paul's saying about it, about the time when he was a child, let me just say, I think that's an important concept spiritually to remember in light of relating to children. 
both naturally, generally, as well as spiritually, to remember that they're children. So therefore, their thinking is going to be childlike. Their ability to understand is going to be on a childlike level. Their ability to communicate what they need or even want to communicate is going to be on a childlike limited level. So therefore, that means we cannot have unrealistic expectations of children. They're children. And so God says, don't have unfair or unrealistic expectations, even spiritually, of a child. Because they're still a child. They're in that condition. In that season, they have a limited capacity due to the condition or stage of life they're in. A limited capacity to understand concepts, to communicate properly. That's the state that they're in. So therefore, what does that mean? What's the chapter about? Love. It means we need to extend love to children for being children. We need to extend patience and grace properly to them out of love for where they are. That's an important reminder in parenting. They're a child. Don't forget, and just because maybe you feel like they're embarrassing you in public or you want to look like your kids perform better than they really are or because they're annoying you, don't forget they're children. Let them be children. Have realistic expectations, but understand their children. That's also important as well, I think, for children's ministry. And that's why we value children's ministry. To me, the value and the importance of children's ministry isn't foremost, as some want to believe, because we want them out of the sanctuary because they're a distraction. You know, I used to get that argument all the time over the Look, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Why don't you want children in the sanctuary? I would say, right, Jesus wanted children to come to him. When I speak on an adult-like level, a Bible study for 45 minutes, if you have a five-year-old sit there, do you know what that five-year-old's going to do? Hate church. Because they're going to sit there, and they're going to be bugging their parents. Stop it. You're embarrassing me. Stop it. And I don't understand a single thing that this guy is saying. This is boring. This is miserable. But take that five-year-old out. Stick them in Lori and Margie's class and let them have a blast and have fun and do all this great and wonderful thing and have a Bible study in a small, digestible way that they can chew up and digest and have fun and crafts and activities and all these things that make children's ministry wonderful. Now, all of a sudden, they're understanding things spiritually, right? They're grasping things. They're having a wonderful experience in the house of God. And so, again, we have to remember this reality. This is why children's ministry is vital. Why it's absolutely important. So Paul says, when I was a child, I thought I understood like a child. But notice the contrast. When I became a man, that is when I became an adult, I put away childish things. So Paul says, as I matured, when I became an adult, I properly embraced change as I was supposed to. See how God balances everything? Let the kids be kids. But he says, as adults, let's not behave like kids. That's not loving. Love matures, it grows up. Paul says, when I became a man, I took appropriate responsibility that came along with maturity and better understanding. He says, I put away, that is, I stopped doing certain things that were childish. I put an end in my life to certain things that were childish. I moved to the next stage and discontinued childish thinking and childish behavior 
and childish attitudes, right? Kids do certain things in their childish weakness that, that you no, that's because they're a child. But when an adult acts like a child, that's not appropriate. He says that's, that's not the way it's supposed to work. God wants us to grow up. He doesn't want us to live in childishness perpetually. God's plan is that we would mature and embrace responsibility and accept a greater accountability, particularly in moral and spiritual matters. And look, this is important for a person to do as you're maturing to realize you can't keep acting childish forever. Sometimes the word of the Lord to some is grow up, man. Stop acting like a kid. Your attitude or your mannerisms or your behavior, your lifestyle, God's saying, grow up. Embrace your adulthood. Morally, spiritually, embrace it now. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You can't live perpetually like a child, God says. Paul says, I put that away. And I think this is important as well. Let me just say, for us to expect this of adults. I think we do a great disservice to our children and to people around us when we continue to allow them to behave childish when they're adults. We're not helping them. That does not mean, that's not love. It's really not. We're pampering childish behavior. And one of the great mistakes I currently think our culture is making is we are tolerating childishness way too much in the up-and-coming generations. We need to let kids be kids and not make them grow up too quick. That's wrong. That's one mistake our culture makes. But the other mistake we're making as they're beginning to you know, enter into that adult phase is we're allowing them to think childish, behave childish, act childish, and live a lifestyle that's childish. And God's saying, no, you need to put away that childish stuff. It's time to grow up. That's the loving thing to do. It's actually selfish, right, to keep behaving childish when you should be behaving maturely and like an adult, taking responsibility, being a contributor rather than just always a consumer, being someone who's blessing people instead of just always being a burden on people. So Paul says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. Now, of course, Paul's using this analogy here to picture how, again, he was once in a limited state spiritually, I mean, as he was a child, and then he matured, and how we as well only possess partial, limited, if you might say, like childlike spiritual maturity. And then one day we're going to enter into full adulthood, complete mature spiritual experience. And this is kind of that analogy that Paul is drawing here. Think of it. When we're born again spiritually, we're babes in Christ. And, And the Bible even uses that analogy. The beginning of your spiritual experience is a spiritual birth, right? And people are babes in Christ. When somebody's a brand new Christian, right? There are certain things about a babe in Christ. They shake up the church and, you know, those of us that get old and stale, they wake us up again and they're excited about the Bible and excited about the Lord. But babes in Christ also sometimes manifest some spiritual maturity in other areas, right? But then we, hopefully we're all growing, we're maturing, we're progressing. And this is the idea that one day we reach full spiritual maturity. So Paul says in light of that, verse 12, for now, right now, again, he says, we see in a mirror dimly but then later on face to face now i know in part but then i shall know just as i am known again notice the imagery of our experience now there's our word again versus the period later on where a change will come then in the next stage he says verse 12 there right now we see 
in a mirror dimly. And what Paul's referring to, they clearly understood in that day, what they used for a mirror was just a piece of polished, shiny metal. So when you looked in a mirror in that day, it was just polished, shiny metal. You saw a little bit of reflection, but it wasn't that great. It was still kind of blurry and fuzzy. It wasn't nice and clear like the nice mirrors we have nowadays. So it was sort of a, a dim or a blurry and unclear view. So you had a partial view of reality when you looked at yourself. You didn't have the full reality. You just kind of had a partial view in what you were able to know. That's what our current spiritual view is like now. It's partial. It's unclear, right? No matter how long we've been walking with the Lord and reading our Bible and studying, some things are still fuzzy, right? I just I don't, know, I don't know if I 100% get that. Well, that's a part of journeying the spiritual life. Right now, things are partial. But, he says again, then, later on, we're going to be face to face. A change is coming. One day, we're going to be face to face, not looking into a mirror, but face to face with Jesus when we die or he returns. Now, to be face to face with someone speaks of being what? In their presence, right? Actually with them. Hey, we had a face to face meeting. And we all know, and I don't think any of us would dispute, hearing somebody's voice on the phone, wonderful. Hear their voice, talk to them, communicate with them. Fantastic to be able to do that. Looking at a picture of somebody, right? My phone's filled with pictures of my wife and my kids. Be able to look at their pictures if I'm not with them. Wonderful. We have FaceTime nowadays where you can video conference and actually see somebody. But even FaceTiming, right? It glitches sometimes. None of those things compare to actually what? Being face-to-face with a person and being in their presence and together with them. Right now, we see Jesus through eyes of faith in his word, through his spirit working in our lives. Right now, we hear his voice in different degrees, but one day the future promises we're going to see his face literally. We're going to be face to face with him. Psalm 17 says, because I am righteous, I will see you. When I awake, I will see you face to face and be, listen, satisfied. When are you finally going to be fully satisfied? When you're face to face with Jesus. I don't understand why I'm so dissatisfied. I'm so dissatisfied because you're not face to face with Jesus yet. That's part of the process on earth. Earth should make you, to a degree, dissatisfied. Something's wrong with you if you're fully satisfied on earth. When we're face-to-face with Jesus, we'll be fully satisfied. 1 John 3, 2 says, Dear friends, now we're children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So right now, there is this limitation He says, now I know in part, partially, but then I shall know, notice, just as I am known. The idea is when we're finally face-to-face with Jesus, it's going to be like when we're face-to-face with Jesus, like switch into a clear mirror. Like you've had this fuzzy view, but then all of a sudden when you're face-to-face with Jesus, it's going to be like switching to a clear mirror and you're going to go, wow because then you're going to fully know everything you've been longing to know about the Lord, even about the depth of what it took to save your soul as all these things become more clear in their spiritual reality. We're going to know even as we're known, that is to the degree that he knows us super well, we're going to know things super well as he gives us full disclosure. 
complete revelation. You know, I wear contacts. My, you know, eyesight is absolutely horrible. If I get up in the morning and I can't find my glasses, I can't even find my wife laying next to me. My vision's bad. But when I throw my glasses or I put my contacts in, all of a sudden, wow, the world's totally different. Well, that's kind of what's going to transpire for us spiritually. Right now, it's, it's okay. Things are going to be unclear sometimes. That's okay. We walk by faith, the Bible says, and not by sight. But we fix our eyes not on what is unseen, but what is, or not on what is seen, but unseen, because that is what is eternal. What we're seeing now is just temporary. And Paul concludes verse 13 by saying, and now abide or remain faith, hope, and love. These three says, but the greatest of these, he comes back to again, is love. So right now, these three virtues continue to be at work in a part of our spiritual life on earth. We need to exercise faith. We need to keep remaining hopeful. We need to keep demonstrating love amongst one another. But he says the greatest among these things is love. The reason why, again, because love's the one thing that will last forever, all the way into eternity. See, once we're face-to-face with Jesus, think about this. Once you're face-to-face with Jesus, you don't really need to exercise faith anymore. You're seeing it all now. So faith isn't really going to be that essential in heaven. Nor do we really need to hope for much anymore because all of our hopes have been fulfilled. We're enjoying perfect clarity and perfect fulfillment in his presence. Yet love will keep enduring forever and ever and ever and ever because for all of eternity, we will keep experiencing God's love for us in greater and greater degrees. For all of eternity, we'll be expressing our love for God in worship forever and ever and ever. And for all of eternity, we will have nothing but pure love for each other relationally in heaven. No more strife or division or criticism. It will be perfect, loving harmony. Look, it is a blessing to be a Christian now, but can I remind you this morning, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. So in the interim, until that time, let's focus on, as Jesus said, simply loving the Lord and loving one another. Let's stand.